In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Tova Felchu joins us this week on Money Tales. Tova is a six-time Emmy and Tony nominee. Chances are you've seen her in one of her many performances, which have spanned Broadway stages, film, and television. Tova is also an author, having recently published a memoir entitled Lilyville, Mother, Daughter, and Other Roles I've Played. She's currently raising funds to bring a theater production called Becoming Dr. Ruth to New York. Hi, this is Sandy. Cammie and I enjoyed talking with Tova about her art, her life, and how money has played a role in both. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics that she brings to life in this episode. First, how her dad empowered Tova with money at the age of five, which led her to a lifetime of financial confidence. Second, the fragility of trust, especially when it comes to your financial advisors. And third, if you want to make money or manage money, you have to give it energy. Please stick around after the interview for a short discussion on financial parenting. Now, onto our conversation with Tova Feldshu. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Sandy, you told us a story about a meeting you were going to have with one of our clients and their family. Would you share a little bit more about how it went? Yes. We had the meeting last week. We were meeting with the mom and dad and the two adult children, and we were talking about some family assets that the children would ultimately own together. And it was a great conversation. We spent a lot of time at the outset talking about each family member's orientation toward money. And it was interesting. Everyone had a different perspective to money, and that allowed us to really get on the same page and understand and respect one another in the conversation. And the parents had a really, I think, fun time talking with the kids about the family wealth. And it's not just the financial wealth that we were talking about. We also talked about the family's spiritual capital, their social capital. This family has a lot of legacy capital, different members of prior generations who aren't alive today, but still play a role in the family's wealth conversations. So it was a lot of fun. It was hard. I think for some of the family members, it was difficult to have this open conversation, but we got them over the hump and it was productive. So thanks for checking in about that, Cami. Congratulations. I love that legacy capital concept and look forward to talking more about that. And today we get to talk with our guest about her orientation toward money. Tova Felchu, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you. Wonderful to be here and unique to be here. 
Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and share two or three pivotal moments that really influence you, making you the person you are today? In terms of money, I've always enjoyed it. I remember my first allowance was 10 cents. And my father, one week, instead of giving me 10 cents, gave me $5. And I said, Daddy, this is $5. It's not 10 cents. And he said, I know, but you know what to do with money. You know how much to put in your piggy bank. You know how much to give as sadaka, as charity, which is a commandment in our religion. You know how much to save for your Three Musketeers bar. I have complete confidence in you that you know how to manage your money. And I think I was five. So it was a very interesting parenting technique. My father was in the intelligence of the war, being fluent in German and French saved his life, even though he was an American boy, but he knew death. His father died at 16 and he knew death from World War II. So when he came home and I was his first infant, my brother was born during the war, he didn't leave my side and he had a great zest for life, a great love of life and appreciation and an understanding how life disappears. So what he would do with his children is invest in them what he hoped for them. Just like when I put Amanda and Brandon to bed, who are now 38 and 34 years old, I would say, I'm the luckiest mommy in the world because I have the most empathic child. And they go, what empathic mommy? And I'd say, that's when you feel with people, that when you walk into a room, you say, what's wanted and needed in this space? If you walk into a library, what's wanted and needed is quietude. If you walk into a baseball game, what's wanted and needed is perhaps deciding what team you want to root for. So I put in them what I hoped for them, and they've done very well in life. It's what my father did for me. He trained me to ride horses, and he said, how often can a little girl tell a big animal what to do? So with money, he invested faith in me. And I have to tell you, ain't never been short of money, ain't never been in money trouble ever in my life, whether I was a McKnight Fellow at the Guthrie Theater making $110 a week and budgeted $440 a month in 1970 and 71 and 72, or whether I was astonished at my salary in the Holocaust miniseries or what I would get paid to go on television, where you couldn't compare that even in many respects to a Broadway salary unless you were in a one-woman show called Golda's Balcony and all the numbers worked out well, and then that salary was like a television or film salary. I've always been good with money, and I'll tell you why. I didn't study it. I was told I'd be good with money, so I believed it. So that was my childhood. Money for me in the prime of my career, which I still regard I'm in the prime of my career, though I'm in my third act chronologically, but in the prime of my career, I always wanted enough money for freedom. I said to myself as a young kid, I got Yentl, which was my first marquee, at the O'Neill Theater on Broadway, I said, I want to have enough money to decide every day whether I want to take a cab or the subway. I wanted the freedom. And I noticed 50 years later, I use my money to buy experience. I don't need any more diamonds or pearls. I don't need another Chanel suit. What I need is to make sure I'm at the Boca Museum for the Machu Picchu exhibit or at the Norton Gallery, which I was there just Saturday. I was on concert tour in Florida. If I learn something every day and have the money to do it, and it's a good day. It's a really good day. What a great background. And I'd like to understand when your dad turned to you at age five or whatever it was, you're young, and empowered you and said, you will be good with money. I'm confident you are and up your allowance. He actually said, Cammy, you know how to manage money. He used that verb. You know how to manage money. And I've never been broke, never struggled. 
Tell us how that felt back at that age to be told you know how to manage money. It felt good. I really didn't know what it meant. So I kept asking, what does it mean? And that's when he defined it. You know how much to put in your piggy bank. You know how much to give as charity. You know how much to spend on Three Musketeers. And also, my father was a devoted teeth brusher. He used to brush three times a day, and he died at 86 with all his teeth. My mother died at over 103 with none of her teeth, but good gums. Keep your gums healthy, because that's how disease enters in your later years. Really quite serious. The other thing you did is, in those days, you had a bank book. We opened up a savings account, first at Scarsdale Bank, but then at the Bowery Savings on 42nd Street, where Cipriani is now. And I would go into the Bowery Savings as a young kid. I worked in my father's law office to earn money for a dollar an hour. And I also became part of office temporaries when I was at Sarah Lawrence to earn extra money. It was $400 to go back and forth to Mexico. This is what they do. They would send me the first time, Cammy, and I'd have to pay for it the second or the third or the fourth. Sent me to Mexico, I'm fluent in Spanish. Sent me to Italy, I'm fluent in Italian. Sent me to France, fluent in French. And then the second time, I had to earn the money to have the experience. And that's the other thing I think is very important. I agree with Warren Buffett. Helicopter parents, parents who swoop in to make everything right, parents who take shortcuts for their children when their children have overstepped boundaries are not serving their children. My kids are magnificent. They both had hiccups in their adolescence, as one does. And we couldn't save them, and I chose not to save them. We taught them that there are consequences. 16 is nothing, but after 18, you are responsible to the United States government, to the federal law, and to the state law, and to the city law, and that they're subject to it as we are as citizens, and that there's an obligation. In those years, pot was so illegal. And I remember asking Brandon, my husband's a lawyer, that was a lucky break. I married a Harvard lawyer, so that's another reason I didn't have to worry about money. But a woman has to have her own money, separate accounts, and don't ever sign anything you don't understand. And most of the stuff we don't understand. So read it aloud or go to Rachel Mansdorf, my estate lawyer, and make sure she explains it to you. Somebody explains it to you. And it doesn't matter if you have to pay them. So pay them. I'll explain it to you. But I remember Andy saying, if you're at a party with pot and you're not smoking, if the cops bust the party, you will be implicated because you're there. You're at the scene of the crime. Now it's no longer a crime. But I remember those things. And Amanda, our daughter, had a hiccup. She was briefly suspended from school. And I was starring in some play and it was great because I could work with her during the day. She wasn't allowed to go to school. And she brought herself after that a very difficult experience because she was suspended for not just for a few days, but she stayed at her school. She brought her average from a 92 to a 96 and got into MIT, graduated with a 94.5 in physics in three and a half years. So she ended up going from bright to brilliant because of this trauma of overstep. So with money, you were talking about legacy money and inherited wealth, I would say, enjoy it, but beware of it. Beware, beware that every person is put on this planet for the purpose of healing the world. That's called tikkun olam. It's a very well-known principle in the Talmud. Every person is put on this planet for the purpose of healing the world. So you have two wonderful wealth advisor women who now want to expand their umbrella to share knowledge about money and to lower anxiety about money. So that's their tikkun, okay? I think of the good that certain philanthropists do who have a lot of money. And that should be your focus. Not to have your child say when you finally fly first class on a regular plane, what the hell are these other people doing on my plane? Or when my girlfriend from Bel Air many years ago, she said, you know, you've hit the bottom when to punish your children, they have to sweep the tennis court. 
that's all I can say. I've been very happy with my financial class. My parents came from the upper middle and lower middle class. My father aspired and became quite successful, and we were, had an upper middle class life. But my inheritance was the house. My brother David is a professor at Cornell. He was head of the theater at Cornell, and a Phi Beta Kappa, and a Pulitzer finalist. So we're a hardworking family, and we didn't have helicopter parents. Tova, there's so much in what you just said. There's so much richness. I want to hone in on the legacy aspect for a moment, because in your book, Lilyville, you do write a lot about your family's history, about coming from a very different background generations ago. And now, as you just said, when you were growing up, moving into an upper middle class family. Tell us about the legacy aspects of that. Were there reminders within your family conversation about money, either directly or indirectly? that reference back to the prior generations and the struggle that they went through? Well, my grandparents went through much more struggle than my mother, though my mother put herself through NYU. I have the bill. I may have taken a picture of it for Lilyville, but she was the first to go to college of the four Kaplan girls. She paid for her college. She worked at the Bowery Savings at 72nd and Broadway. It was interesting. And then I opened my first account at 42nd Street. My grandpa came over in the bottom of a boat He was Russian. My grandmother was British. He came from Russia. So he hit London at the turn of the century, met this British girl, Ada Tobias, and fell in love with her, prevailed upon her to come to America. And they entered America. I have the immigration papers. It says Ada Kiplin, Hebrew tailoress, London, England. It's wild. My grandfather was a cutter of patterns. That was very important. So Ralph Lauren would sketch it. Gershon Kaplan would cut it. I was just with Dale Chihuly, the great, great glass sculptor, probably the most prominent glass sculptor in the Western world. And his body is a younger man named Raven. So Dale Chihuly's 81, and Dale Chihuly says, put that fiori here, put this horn here, and it's Raven that climbs up on these sculptures on the ladders and does it. So in all events, they came in the bottom of a boat, and every time my grandfather was cutting patterns and my grandmother was sewing, they made money. And then my grandfather wanted his own label. I have that. It says G. Kaplan Fifth Avenue. And they would tank because he didn't have you. He didn't know how to manage money. He was really an artist. Might have been a painter. They've been wealthy. And I remember they lent one of the British cousins money. And that cousin didn't pay him back. And we never spoke to him. We lost that part of the family for 25 years. You know, it's what Arthur Miller says in The Crucible. You need a good name. So hate is strong. Love is strong. But trust is fragile. You lose people's trust. And in your business, Sandy and Cammy, you lose people's trust. Your clients are out of there. I'd be out of there in five seconds. You can't trust people with money. Very often, business managers have stolen from actors. I don't have a money manager for my professional life. Tell us about that too, Tova. Rising within your career, making a lot of money decisions every day. I would imagine deciding between going to Hollywood or staying on Broadway is a huge money decision to make. How are you making those decisions? Well, it was tough because you sacrifice international fame and fortune when you stay in New York. Broadway is magnificent. I love it. And it took me a few decades to realize it really is local talent. You really cannot sell out in Iowa unless you are perennially big time. And when I just played Florida, we played big houses. They all said, you're fabulous on Law and Order. We're too old to watch The Walking Dead. Have you seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? And I just did a picture with Tony Hopkins and Anne Hathaway was our daughter. And I hope that gets big play. It's called Armageddon Time, written by James Gray. So that was very exciting. When I lived in Hollywood, 
the first five years of our marriage, it was a place that I would call expedient. I would compare Hollywood to Rome with beautiful roads and practical uses of money in the physical universe and a devotion to the physical universe. I was judged on my looks. I was judged on the size of my breasts. I would lose jobs to people who were perceived as more overtly sexual than I was outside of the bedroom. And let me tell you, I am very sexual. So I just don't go around with my cleavage all the time, nor do I have it showing today. If you give yourself to causes you don't believe in, that's what you're left with. And I couldn't do it. I could do it now. I'm older. The place is very mild. I played uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg there at the Wallace Annenberg right before the pandemic. And you couldn't get in the theater. We had great success. I was lucky to be with Stephanie Farisi and directed by Patricia McGregor, produced by Patricia Weber and Paul Cruz. And it was magnificent. That theater is gorgeous. It was right in Beverly Hills. So I love going there now. And I love working there when I work with Rachel Bloom and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And she needed Broadway actors with Broadway technique. She needed to give me a five-page solo that I could come in cold and do it in one or two takes. She needed that. So that was great. You're being used for what you're meant to do. And Hollywood has become much less provincial, much more savvy. And it's still, in terms of media, the biggest time. I mean, we're cute over here in New York, and we're very, very gifted. Patty Lupone, myself, Christine Ebersole. I can name those people at my age who can do eight a week on one hand. But even Merrill now, she lives in Connecticut. It's a different career than being right, right in there in the Hollywood scene. I have some regrets about that, but I don't have money regrets about it. Regrets about what? About leaving Hollywood. The other reason we left, which was very important, is the grandparents of our children were 3,000 miles away. We had no family. We had one cousin, and I still have one cousin out there. Now he's the head of ICM, Christopher Silberman, and they just combined with CAA. So he's big time. But that was it. Peter and Joan Silberman, my first cousins, had this little boy, Chris, and that was it. So at the Seders, at all the Jewish holidays, we were not stranded. We moved in with the Iranian Jews, with the Sephardic Jews, and they have different traditions. But my father represented a lot of Iranians in his heyday, the Elganian family, and they went to Persia, Iran, six times a year. It was very exciting. Tova, you talked about money and how it symbolizes freedom, and you wanted freedom, but you pursued a career that, for those of us who are not in the acting field, seems very risky and hard to make money. How did you decide on this career, this very exciting career, but that wasn't necessarily a guarantee for financial success? We were wealthy enough or we had enough money. We were away from want. I think one of my father's clients paid him in fish. My father never worried about dough. I remember he gave my mother $500 a week in those years. He was very generous. He didn't worry, maybe because he lost his dad at 16 and he was surrounded by debt at the war. He understood the difference between money and something that's medical or military. And so do I. So I was on the wait list at Harvard Law, and I was very attached to my father. He went to Harvard Law. I applied to one law school. That's not a serious career for a lawyer, but it's a person who wanted to be with her father all the time. And instead of being with my father, I married a Harvard lawyer, and it's been a fabulous marriage, except when he becomes like my mother, then it's not so much fun. But I married a brilliant lawyer, Andrew Harris Levy, and he had a stellar career as head of real estate for Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, and then senior counsel to DLA Piper, and he just retired. I just remember in Hollywood waiting for the next job, and it was like this black hole of the universe, and 
everybody was taking lessons. So I was studying with Milka Katsalis and I was taking my voice lessons and my dancing lessons. I'm busy. A lot of the acting classes also had to do with the strategizing of how to get a job. Whereas in New York, I was barraged with work. You didn't strategize how to get the job. You were in a job. You play Yentl, you play Maria Morelli, you go one from another, one from another. And then Hollywood looks at it and then says, oh, she's really good in that. Why don't we put her in Holocaust? Why don't we let her play Catherine Hepburn, which I did opposite Tommy Lee Jones. I mean, I've had a very varied, wonderful career, and I've really enjoyed the intellectual and cultural life of my hometown. I'm born on 90th and Lexington, brought up in Scars. I went to Sarah Lawrence, started graduate school at Columbia and got a scholarship. I got a scholarship as a McKnight Fellow to the Guthrie, so I immediately had no financial considerations. I made that 440 a month work. I think my parents bought me a piano. We bought a secondhand piano for $200 or $300. As a gift, they gave it to me in my one-bedroom apartment. I painted my apartment myself with my then-boyfriend. I made it work. We went to Mardi Gras. We drove down in my busted-up Toyota. We were kids. We were practically camping out. And then I got into the chorus of Cyrano. I remember my salary was over $300 a week. and could go from $110. That was a big deal. And I had 14 lines in a red dress, and I came to Broadway. And uh, the Guthrie was so thrilled to send me off because I don't think they thought I had it. And 18 months later, I was on that marquee, and I was earning a very good salary. And then that spilled over. In those years, if you could get commercials, you'd get $5,000 as a fee for a commercial. 40 years ago, that was a lot of money. I also am married to a man who's very interested in money. Andy is fascinated by money. We're now in stage three. We're in our third act. So I was empowered with money, empowered with my ability to manage money as a five-year-old, then to earn it in the top of my bell curve in my middle years, and now to preserve the estate. Tell us a little bit more about the second part, because you mentioned earlier, Tova, that keeping some money to yourself was really important. I'd like to hear more about that and where the idea came from and how you put that into practice during your life. The idea came from Sydney again. He said, never beg a man for a hat. And that was a metaphor. Don't ever have to beg somebody for something that he may deem a luxury and you may deem a necessity. So I love him. And believe me, he has paid for the tuition for these children, a very costly thing for people to go to Harvard and MIT and Oxford University and Collegiate and Spence and the 92nd Street Nursery School. There were two things. Never beg a man for a hat. So he has never bought me a piece of clothing. I mean, maybe as a gift, but basically I collect a certain designer. I make my money. I bought that designer. That was in my millions. Now I collect my money and I go on a trip. I've been to 95 countries and then everything stopped cold with COVID and I wrote my book. So that was my father. And my father was very generous with my mother, but my mother was completely financially dependent on my father. He made one or two excellent investments. So my mother lived to over 103 and we never had a supporter. That's a miracle. She died in that 14 room house in Scarsdale. And our family did well, but we're not the Forbes 400. We just were well off. And that one investment helps me and helps my brother. It's split in half now. It's not an enormous amount of money, but it's enough money to play with. I strongly suggest if you can get in a good real estate deal, I don't know much about it, but do it. It's worked well for you. As you were responding to this, another question entered my mind, which was growing up because of the time, especially that you were growing up, your mom being dependent upon your father financially must have sent some money messages to you. Yes, but my father was very generous. 
So it said to me that all men are generous. So if I'm out with Andy, let's say, and Andy was brought up in a stricter sense, his mother was wildly thrifty, fixed her own toilets. She was magnificent, don't get me wrong. But her clothes were not clean because she didn't send them enough times to the cleaners. I grew up in a meticulous household where stuff gets washed, stuff gets sent to the cleaners. You don't, as the Yiddish word is, you don't forgive, you don't begrudge yourself certain things. Andy is much more modest than I am. When I celebrate, I want to go to Majorelle. I want to go to the best restaurants. I'm proud to spend $350 on lunch for two. I enjoy that. It makes me feel like a free person, a free homo sapien who has choice. I really enjoy that. And that's even without liquor. I think I had one drink. We went to the Breakers. And I'm very proud to say my husband didn't say a peep because it was the celebration of our 45th wedding anniversary. And because I have my own money, I always say to Andy in our money dynamic, because he is more modest than I am, I said, look, want to go to the Breakers? I'm happy to pay for it. I really am. I'm really happy to pay for it. And then, of course, we go to the Breakers and he pays for it. So it works out very well, but he wouldn't entitle himself. There it is. So you need your own money for freedom of choice. And then you're up to making freedom of choice. I have noticed as I've gotten older that it's not that I'm more money conscious. I call it love to spend, hate to waste. So what that looks like, that actually looks like using the baggie twice because of the environment, not throwing out plastic so quickly, reusing them and reusing them. It's represented by using absolutely every smutch of that toothpaste. So I'll buy good toothpaste, but it has to be used to the end. Tova, tell us more about writing a memoir. What inspired you? What was your ultimate goal in this? And how does it feel to be done? It must feel wonderful. I had these uh, wonderful managers. They got a call from an agent who is now at UTA named Albert Lee. And he listened to a podcast I did, and it was about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And he called my managers and said, does Tova Felcher have a literary agent? They said, no. And he said, I think she's got a writer's voice. And he came here with his partner, a wonderful woman. And they sat here and they said, what do you want to write? I said, well, I really want to write a series about my mother called Lilyville, but I don't know how to write a television series. He said, well, we're not in the series business. We're in the book business. What about you write a memoir? I was asked to originally write a celebrity memoir, and I said, I know who I am. I'm a Broadway, I hope, award-winning actress, and I'm local talent. I mean, I've been nominated for two Emmys, but so what? And rather than just write about me, I'm not Julia Roberts, I'm not Tom Cruise, I'm not an international brand. Why don't I write about one of the most important primal universal relationships we have since we're all born of a mother, which is the mother-daughter relationship. And my mother, that is a picture of us at my bat mitzvah, but there she is with her corsage, and there I am with my bat mitzvah pearls and my dress from Bonwood Tellers with matching green satin pumps from Miles Shoe Store. I had my hair done at Trejoli, I believe, that day, and I was allowed to wear lipstick. Gorgeous photo. For our listeners, Tova's just been showing us the cover of her book, Lilyville. It's all about the struggle of a mother and a daughter to understand each other, but it is written in the form of a play. So instead of chapters, I give you scenes. And instead of sections, I give you acts. Instead of a prologue, I give you an overture. And afterward, I give you exit music. And instead of acknowledgments, I throw a cast party and list all the people who helped me. So it's written in scenes. And in between each scene is something we call in one. In one was a vaudeville term when the actor would come down in front of the most 
forward curtain and do a tap dance or a song while they change the scenery behind the curtain for the next scene. And that is how I got my career in. My in-ones between each chapter of this relationship with my mother as Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Walking Dead, Yentl, all sorts of wonderful anecdotes about my career and also is peppered with Lilyisms and Tovaisms. Here's an example of a Lilyism. I take my mother to see Miss Saigon on Broadway. She walks out of the show and she says, isn't the point of theater not to have the helicopter? That was that one. We pick Amanda up from coming back from La Caruña, Spain, where I sent her to study Spanish, like my parents sent me abroad to study Spanish. And she gets off the plane. She'd cut her hair without our knowledge. And she has her little cleavage showing and she has size C breasts. And my mother has size C breasts. I have size A breasts. So my mother looks at me. She looks at Amanda and she says, well, I guess it skips a generation. (laughs) So she is a riot. That is the book. You will laugh. You will cry. It has a big chapter on my father and my relationship with him. It has a huge chapter on her death because the last thing a great parent can do is to teach you how to die. And she did. She showed me how to die and how not to be afraid. That was a big one. It's a really big deal. And it's also on Audible if you'd rather listen to the audiobook. But I'd love you to buy it. If you buy it and you want to get a hold of me through tovafelcher.com, I will send you a book plate made out to you. Dear Cammy, thank you so much for this fabulous interview on Money Tales. All my best, Tova Felcher. So thank you for asking. What a beautiful gift. Thank you. Tova, thank you so much for talking with us about money today. We have one last question for you, which is, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Well, I have a lot of money conversations now with Andrew Harris-Levy, my husband, who after all was one of the consultants at Gersten Fisher besides being a stellar lawyer. Because he is retired, he has spent some very intensive months, I would say almost nine months working on our estate. A lot of my discussions are with him. And then we hired a lawyer, Rachel Mansdorf, as an estate lawyer so that I can speak to her separately. And it does concern me signing papers. I have to know what the heck I'm doing and how to divest the estate and how to do it legally, properly. But that's with whom I speak. But I'm very lucky. I'm married to a professional who loves to do that. That's the other thing. You want to make money. You want to preserve money. You have to give energy to it. It's like brushing your teeth. You can't just hope for the best. It's like anything we pursue. It's what Malcolm Gladwell calls at least 10,000 hours for mastery. I don't nearly have mastery. But I am with Andrew Harris-Levy. He's my husband. He's a marvelous guy. And then I go to Gersten Fisher, and they always say, you have nothing to worry about. And I say, show me. Show me exactly how I have nothing to worry about. What's awful is what's best to spend first is my earnings, which kills me. I'd rather spend my inheritance from my mother, which isn't that much, but that's what makes sense. The icing on that cake, you want to go to swim with the orangutans or something or go to Borneo again. I want to take the Jehovah Felchi Irrevocable Trust. So I want to take that money and go to Borneo and save my earnings to make sure that I can take Ubers. That doesn't work that way. So it's very uncomfortable, but I'm teaching myself and learning and hoping everything's right. The other thing that's very difficult for me, for my generation, let's say you have $100,000 in your checking account. Now, you know you're not supposed to have $100,000 in your checking account, that you're supposed to put it someplace that earns some interest, even some interest, not just sitting there. That's hard because we were taught to feel flush 
when our bank accounts were full. And that's not the game anymore. The game is investments. Well, Tova, thank you so much for sharing. Your life is rich with money and money conversations and such great wisdom. And there's so many ideas that you brought to life. And I love the last ending comment about giving energy to something you really are passionate about. And making money is a great example. And for us, it's talking about money. So thank you very much for joining us on Money Tales today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Cami. And may you go from strength to strength. That was just a really special conversation with Tova. What hit home for me as a mom of two relatively young girls was her talking about this gift her dad gave her with the allowance and this gift of confidence and empowering her. And then later in the conversation, she talked about Warren Buffett and how we can't be helicopter parents and we got to let our kids make mistakes. And what I heard was all types of mistakes and specifically for this conversation, even financial mistakes. And that's so hard to do, Cami. As parents, we want to protect our children. We want to show them the way and we want them to learn from our own life experiences, forgetting that those experiences, especially the ones where we crashed and burned, tend to be where we pick up the most insights, knowledge, and learning. When we speak with clients about financial parenting, there are many different topics that we discuss. Here are three that I want to highlight for listeners today. First is have a vision for the competencies you want your children to have around money. What are the financial parenting goals that you have? Second, give them room to have experiences with money, whether they're spending money, managing money, giving money away. And third, keep talking about money. Let's break those down into a little bit more detail. First, on having a vision, it's really important to know what competencies you want your kids to have. For Tova, her dad wanted her to have confidence around money, and he gave her examples about the type of things she would be doing with money, and that helps set some expectations for her. For your kids, Cammie, what kind of goals do you have for them when you think about raising them to be financially sophisticated someday? First, that idea of money is valuable. Money is important, and that you shouldn't just spend it. That We're at the ages where they're, anytime they get their hands on money, they have ideas that would spend it and then some. So as I sit here as a parent, I'm thinking I need to incent them to save, that there's need for other things besides whatever they currently want to buy. And then giving it to those who are less fortunate. That's a goal of mine that they understand that there's almost an obligation that this world isn't necessarily fair and we need to help others and give a hand up. That's beautiful. So you have a lot of values tied in with your goals, which are really important. And if you have that crystallized vision, it will help you make sure that you're giving them experiences that will help support that vision. So that's where the experience of money comes in. And we've talked on prior episodes about you enrolling, getting ready to give the girls an allowance And that's a great way to give them some resources that they can practice with. And if they make quote unquote mistakes, maybe they spend a little too much, 
or they don't have enough money saved away for a special something later on, or maybe they're not giving as much as you'd like, whatever the case is, it's important to take notice of those situations and to talk through it with them. That was your second point about letting them make what I would consider was a mistake and letting them do that and then learn from it. I do appreciate it's hard as a parent, but I really appreciate how priceless that is. That's where the learning happens versus if I were to continue just to tell them. In my experience, they're going to learn the most if they experience it themselves. If you and Roland are there helping them along the way, having money conversations, asking what it felt like, asking how they made decisions and if they were happy with the decisions that they made or what they might do differently next time, that's all going to help play into your ability to achieve that vision for your two daughters. This is a fun stage of life, Sandy. I really appreciate that you share this. It was fun to talk to Tova, especially talking to someone who is such a wonderfully talented performer and artist. Talking to her about money was amazing. And I appreciate it since a lot of us who are not in the performing arts, and she's just such a warm, wonderful, approachable woman. So thank you again, Tova, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode, Money Tales listeners. If the money conversation you heard today inspires you to continue your own money conversation or gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, please don't hesitate to reach out to Sandy or me. You can reach us at our website, asperient.com, where we have a start a dialogue section, or you can email us directly at podcasts at asperient.com. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Thank you.